My name is John Sylvester. I'm a reporter with The Age newspaper. Some people call me Sly of the Underworld. There are 8 million crime stories in the naked city. And this is one of them. When up-and-coming drug dealer Carl Williams was shot in his ample tummy in 1999 in a small park in Gladstone Park, no one could have predicted Melbourne was about to plunge into a decade-long underworld war. Victims of Melbourne's continuing gangland war. 23rd gangland killing in the past five years. Police are already fearing reprisals in the wake of this latest killing. A premeditated killing in a public place. Innocent children caught up in the deadly world of criminals. Williams met half-brothers Mark and Jason Moran at the park to sort out a few business details, including the ownership of a pill press and a $400,000 disputed debt. Without warning, Jason pulled a gun at the Barrington Crescent Park and ended the debate with a bullet. When Mark suggested he finish the job by killing Williams, the ever-practical Jason said, then how are we going to get our money back? The Morans would eventually regret that pragmatic decision. Carl, an unemployed supermarket shelf stacker making $100,000 a month from drugs, made it home and then to hospital. That day, his mother had baked him a chocolate cake, but Carl didn't eat it, not one slice. A shot in the guts does that to your appetite. The reason for the cake? It was Carl's 29th birthday. He refused to tell police what happened, claiming he'd popped into hospital for a precautionary visit due to a pain in the stomach, and was surprised as anyone when they removed a .22 slug from his belly. While recovering, he decided the Morans would ultimately take Mark's advice to finish the job, and he decided to get in first. The non-fatal shooting of Williams didn't make headlines then, but it soon would. Gangsters started turning up dead, leaving 11 unsolved underworld murders. One was Mark Moran, shot outside his Aberfeldy home in June 2000. Police initially treated each crime individually, despite it being obvious that some, but not all, were connected. Senior homicide investigator Phil Swindell saw that a little-known crook from the West, Andrew Benji Veneman, was the suspect in three murders being investigated by different homicide crews. In late 2002, he began to lobby for a dedicated task force to target Veneman, Williams and their known associates. The Rimmer Task Force, later renamed Piranha, was set up in May 2003. It started with a team of 12 and was given three months to make a mark. It soon grew to 55. 18 years later, almost to the day, it was closed, having done its job. The task force has hit the highs and lows of policing. It cracked underworld murders that looked unsolvable, broke the underworld code of silence, developed an unprecedented network of informers, tracked a drug boss across the world smashed drug syndicates and recovered over 70 million in tainted assets. It also used a practising criminal barrister named Nicola Gobbo as an informer, 
a move that threatens to taint dozens of heavyweight convictions. When Piranha was established, few believed it had any chance of success. Its intelligence holdings were non-existent, the police hardly knew the main players and the crooks thought it was a joke. Drug boss Tony Mockbell was so cocky he named one of his companies, a fashion label, LSD, Love Style and Design. At Flemington races he handed out small samples of cocaine, even flicking a bag to a female undercover assigned to watch him. The number plate on one of his luxury cars was Are You Dare? Teasing police, are you following me? Weeks after Piranha was established, Jason Moran and his friend Pasquale Barbara were gunned down in a van filled with kids at the Essendon Auskick. It was probably the most audacious, reckless and brazen hit of the lot. Around 10.30 in a calculated and deliberate slaying, Jason Moran and another less prominent drug figure were shot dead while five children they had taken to an Auskick clinic sat in the back seat. And this man came from nowhere and he was in dark clothes and having a balaclava on his head and he shot few shots. Right. He, he aimed only at the two people in the front seat. As an aside, Jason once threatened to bite my nose off in what was clearly a gross overreaction. A stern letter to the editor would have sufficed. No need for violence. A year after the task force was established, police informer Terence Hodson and his wife Christine were murdered at their queue home. The man and his wife were found dead by their son last night, although it's believed they may have been killed as early as Saturday evening. It's extraordinary, really. It uh, makes you think, you wonder what's happening out there. It was a clear reminder of what can happen if you talk to the cops. Meanwhile, Carl was getting far too big for his Ugg boots. He was holding press conferences and started to call himself the Premier because I run this state. Hitmen were queuing up to work for him. From a veteran crook, who should have had the brains to retire, prolific arm robbers, and the evil Rodney the Duke Collins, who would kill anyone if the price was right. Veneman, one of Carl's trusted gunmen, was made permanently redundant in March 2004, when he was shot dead in self-defence by Mick Gatto. Gatto knew many of the victims, but he didn't see the underworld war as any of his business. That is, until Carl Williams ordered one of his hit team to kill former safebreaker Graeme Kinnerer, who was shot dead outside his queue home in December 2003. Graeme was one of Mick's best friends, and he believed Andrew Veneman pulled the trigger. This time, Benji Veneman was innocent, but he still ended up dead. Here we hear Gatto recall what happened that day. He spoke to me and he said, I've got to come and see you. I hadn't seen him for a couple of months. And he was running with the other side there and, uh, and I was just curious what he wanted. So I rang him on this day and uh, he rocked up there. And, and uh, he was the one that actually uh, suggested we go out the back and have a quiet chat. And, uh, and that's when it all took place, you know. I was telling him that uh, the rumours were still ripe that, uh, that he had something to do with Graham and... Uh, and uh, he said, mate, I wouldn't do that to you, you're a friend of mine. And uh, I said, well, it's funny you say that uh, PK and, uh, and Dibra were your friends too and you killed them. 
And uh, anyway, we got in a little bit of a heated argument. And I just said to them, look, you can't be trusted and uh, I don't want you in my company, in our company, simple as that. And the next minute he just stepped back and produced again. And then we had a struggle and uh, one nearly hit me in the head. And uh, fortunately uh, he got shot, I never. He died and that uh, was the end of it. The main plays, many who usually stayed in the shadows, were headline news. Piranha was given more resources with a clear message, start getting results. Many crooks didn't appreciate the attention highlighted by this ditty, written by a jailbird turned prison lorikeet. Fucking Piranha Squad, you're a fucking joke. Why pick on us? We're nothing but good blokes. We know you get jealous of our girls and cars. Instead of living your lives, you keep trying to live ours. So before I curse your family and pray to God you die, I hope it's clear that you are the animals and we're the good guys. I think you should stick to crime, mate. The Jason Moran murder was the tipping point. Information from homicide passed to Piranha pointed to a Carl Williams crew, including the runner, a career armed robber. Piranha suspected the team planned another crime and put a tracking device in a car used by the runner. They didn't know it was a hit on drug dealer Michael Marshall. The runner and his partner, the driver, were arrested within hours. Shortly after the hit, a phone call from the runner to Carl was recorded. In it, the runner said, You know that horse you liked? It's been scratched. Not the best code in the world. After the runner was arrested, William sent a message to stay strong. The runner, who'd been promised 200000 for the hit, made it clear he expected his mother to be cared for. When Williams dudded him out of the blue, the runner contacted police. He was prepared to talk. Here is what he said in one of his super, super, super secret statements. While I was at the custody centre, I was visited by my barrister, Nicola Gobbo. I asked her to pass on a message to Carl and Tony, that's Tony Mockbell, and I rubbed my fingers together and mentioned my mother. The action was referring to getting the money from Tony to go to my mother so she could be taken care of. Nicola wrote a note and put it to the screen. Although I don't remember the exact wording, it said words to the effect that she would be seeing them that day. A couple of days later, I spoke to Carl Williams. He was actually at my mum's address. During this call, either my mum or him told me he'd given mum some money. I later discovered that it was only $1,500. I have not received any more of the money promised. To dud a hitman must be one of the most stupid and short-sighted things you could possibly do. It can never be good for business. So the runner changed sides to become a police witness, implicating Williams in a series of murders. Soon several of Williams' associates also jumped ship and headed for the protected witness lifeboat. In 2007, Carl Williams, facing a mountain of evidence and a truckload of confessions from former colleagues, pleaded guilty to the murders of Jason Moran, Lewis Moran and Mark Marlian. 
He pleaded guilty to conspiracy to murder Mario Condello and was found guilty of the murder of Michael Marshall. Justice Betty King said the offences occurred during an extraordinary time in the history of our city. She said the full-time murderer had no right to be judge, jury and executioner of people. You were indeed the puppet master, deciding and controlling whether people lived or died. She said Williams was a coward and a liar who showed no remorse, only pleading guilty because hard-working police had cracked the criminal code of silence. But after sitting impassively throughout the 90-minute sentence, the father of one wanted his say and began yelling as he was led away. You are not a judge, you are a puppet for the police. The sentence has given Williams the dubious honour of having the equal highest term among the state's prisoners who are eligible for parole. While you're here, why don't you take a moment to subscribe to The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald? With the money, we can buy Tim Tams for morning tea. And while you're there, why not leave a lovely review? Like Andy Bads, who described Naked City as Australia's best podcast. Too kind. Actually, I think Andy's right. Williams was murdered inside Barwon Prison in 2010 after he tried to cut a deal to give evidence into the Hodson murders. Barwon Prison goes into lockdown as a steady stream of homicide detectives arrive to investigate the death of notorious underworld kingpin Carl Williams. The 39-year-old convicted murderer died after becoming involved in an altercation with two inmates inside the secure prison unit. Police say he was in an exercise section of the day yard when he was severely beaten about the head with a weapon. He suffered significant injuries and went into cardiac arrest. Some time later, he was found in his cell by prison staff who gave assistance and called an ambulance. Despite the efforts of paramedics, he could not be revived. He was pronounced dead at 1.47pm. A prison officer was just 10 metres away at the time of the assault. With Carl out of the way and the main Morans murdered, Piranha moved its attention to drug boss Tony Mockbell. Tony Mockbell built a drug empire called The Company, and although police reports declared he lacked financial acumen, he was a millionaire many times over. In 1995, as the owner of one suburban pizza parlour, his known assets were 128,000. Six years later, he was worth 15 million, which, if it was legitimate, meant he was selling just under 700 pizzas a day, or one every two minutes. He also had a tame bank insider who authorised loans for Mockbell and his team. A favoured financial advisor would fill out the applications with doctored documents. The Mockbells managed to launder at least 10 million and the advisor was paid a bank commission for bringing in new customers. Every child wins a prize. Tony had been arrested over a container load of chemicals, but due to some of the investigating police being charged with corruption, he was rightly bailed. But instead of laying low, he ramped up production, believing that by using his brothers as executives, he would not be betrayed from within. He was wrong. The Morans weren't quite finished. In 2009, Lewis Moran's ex-wife, the insufferable Judy Moran, organised the murder of her ex-brother-in-law, Des, known as Tuppence, at an Ascot Vale cafe. 
One after the other, guns and clothing hidden in a secret safe and even a dog cushion were uncovered by police, one step ahead of Judy Moran's cover-up. In the hours after the shooting, as she watched the exhibits being bagged, the murder mastermind must have feared her plan was unravelling, but she stuck to her story. She turned up filled with fake anguish in an excruciating performance that proved she was just as bad as an actor as a killer. Shoppers are startled before the pair flee to the getaway car driven by Judy Moran. She's then seen returning to the scene to play the grieving relative again. All the while she'd planned the vengeful killing of her husband's brother after 40 years of bad blood over money and assaults. Police found the getaway car in her garage. Proof that in crime terms, Moran was simply a moron. In 2006, facing certain conviction for federal cocaine charges, Mockbell jumped bail, hit at a friend's body burn shack, then bought a yacht to sail to Greece. He was found guilty in absence only to have his conviction overturned due to Gobbo's role as a police informer. Well, it was a pretty hollow victory because he'd already served his time. The courts ordered a retrial, but the prosecutors decided against pursuing it again. After all, he'd done his time. Tony was tracked to Athens with the help of phone taps and an informer. And it wasn't Gobbo. Tony tricked himself. In one of his phone calls that was monitored, he said he was going to a particular trendy seafood restaurant on the coast in Athens. Jim Coglin from Piranha and Jared Ragg from the AFP were waiting. The Athens police wanted hard evidence. What did Tony look like? What was the name he was using? Where was he living? What car was he driving? Did they know about his bank accounts? They wanted concrete leads so they could find him. Coglin and Ragg had nothing. All they could say is he was Australia's number one fugitive and they needed help. The meeting was going badly until Jim pointed out that he was married to a Greek woman and that he felt Greek himself. The lieutenant colonel from the drug squad asked Jim, so where was your father-in-law born? And he named a little place. Then where was your mother-in-law born? Named a little village in Greece. The lieutenant colonel stubbed his cigarette, walked over to Jim, picked him up and kissed him saying, That is my village. We will catch this man for Jim. And that is why, for more than a week, the whole drug squad was on standby. When they got the phone call, they charged out there. They couldn't recognise Tony because he was wearing that stupid wig. So what they did is they put one of their own men in, an undercover of Pakistani descent. So then the police come in and make a big song and dance, papers please, papers please, identification. At that point they saw a middle-aged man with a baseball cap stand up at the back and start to try and get to the door. The Greek police found their Pakistani man, picked him up, he didn't have papers, they dragged him out and arrested him. Great show. The man with the baseball cap walked back and sat down, thinking the coast was clear. That's when they knew it was Mockbell. Then they asked for his papers, and it was a doctored passport, game set and match. 
Gobbo put her hand up for the million dollar reward, claiming she helped find Mockbell. Her application was rejected for a good reason. She didn't. The real insider was a man codenamed The Musician. He worked for the Mockbells and volunteered to act as a double agent for police. He was crazy brave, often ringing Piranha directly after a meeting with some of Mockbell's henchmen. One day, he walked into the Piranha office with a USB stick. He'd sucked the guts out of one of their computers and he'd identified multiple drug deals and chemical purchases. In the Piranha office, they had a small fish tank inhabited by a sunken plastic ship and a freshwater yabby called Tony. Some staff, fearing Tony the yabby was lonely, introduced a companion, Zara the goldfish, named after gangland lawyer Zara Gard-Wilson. Tony responded to this act of kindness by eating Zara. And they reckon the underworld's ruthless. Tony, the drug dealer, not the yabby, was extradited to Melbourne, accused of a couple of murders that didn't stick, and in the face of overwhelming evidence, pleaded guilty to multiple drug trafficking offences. At court, he wore his traditional dark suit, white shirt and red tie. At the back of the court were the Piranha team, all wearing, you guessed it, dark suits, white shirts and red ties. Despite pleading guilty, Mockbelt has appealed and wants the conviction set aside, claiming Gobbo stabbed him in the back. The twist is the original judge told Tony that without his guilty plea, he would have been sentenced to life, meaning any contested retrial would leave Mockbelt with the ultimate gamble, win and walk out the door, or lose and die in jail. The use of Gobbo as a secret source proved catastrophic and put convictions at risk. The criminal barrister today revealed as the police informant who dobbed on her clients to help police put them behind bars. Victoria Police initially admitted that Gobbo was a registered police informant between 2005 and 2009, but later revealed the lawyer started her double life 10 years earlier in 1995. She represented some of Melbourne's most notorious underworld figures, including Carl Williams, drug trafficker Rob Caram, and Tony Mockbell. Farouk Orman's conviction for the 2002 murder of Victor Pearce has been set aside after he unfairly served 12 years. The three judges of the Court of Appeal ruled that the police informer's betrayal of her client was enough to set him free. There was accordingly a substantial miscarriage of justice the appeal must therefore be allowed. He is suing the Victorian government and will get plenty. For years, senior police considered closing Piranha as other specialist investigators targeted organised crime. What saved it was the public perception of Piranha as the gangbusters until the Gobbo fiasco tarnished the brand. It is now popular to condemn Piranha for the use of Gobbo. But you've got to go back to that time. There were murders every month. The police didn't have a clue. They were offered information from inside. They took it. That's the beginning and the end of it. The betrayal was by Gobbo. She now likes to play the victim. She was a big, grown-up, smart person 
who came in from the cold. She wanted to burn the bridges to the gangsters that she was too close to. She also wanted to protect herself from possibly facing criminal charges. In the end, she was uncontrollable. Police were trying to get her to stop. They didn't want her talking to Mockbell. They had their evidence, but she wanted to stay centre stage. If she provided confidential information, as her role as a barrister, and that resulted in convictions, those convictions will be set aside. If she provided information when she was acting as a crook, why shouldn't the police have been able to use it? Just because you're a lawyer doesn't mean you can't be arrested for being a crook. The Underworld War became the subject of the award-winning Nine series, Underbelly. Dakota Williams' christening was really Carl's coronation. With the destruction of the Moran boys, he had become the most powerful gangster in Melbourne, the King of the Crims. But if he'd had a crystal ball that night, he might not have partied so long and so hard. One viewer who was not impressed was Supreme Court Judge Betty King, whose eagle legal eye spotted that some of the extras were the real piranha detectives. In the first few years, Piranha investigated 316 people, had listening devices operating for more than 100,000 hours, recorded 6,000 hours from 328,000 telephone conversations, used 39 tracking devices and followed suspects for 22,000 hours. Some of the Piranha detectives were threatened, some were followed. It was tough business. Piranha was responsible for the seizure of 75 million in assets, including 54 residential properties, two farms, 30 vehicles, a racehorse, a $5 million share portfolio, and a horse stable. There was the usual gangster trinkets, of gold jewellery and luxury watches. One of the mockballs bragged to the police, you'll never find them. They did. They were buried in a relative's backyard in a PVC pipe. Good try. What is undeniable is Piranha solved 11 murders, thwarted another six attempts, seized nearly 90 million because that includes unpaid taxes, and stopped the underworld war. They also saved lives. To me, that's a bloody good job. This episode of Naked City was written and presented by me, John Sylvester. Production by Tom Campagnoni. Archive from Nine, thanks to Genevieve Capler. Tom McKendrick is head of audio. Music.